Welcome to a Meaningful Marketplace. I'm Sarah Massoni from Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center, where I've helped countless dreamers launch their new food products. It's the science of taking a food delight from the kitchen to mass manufacturing and still keeping its great taste. That's what I do. I've been called the woman with the million dollar palate, although I haven't tried to cash that check yet. Listen in weekly for real life stories. I'm Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce and author of Preservation Pantry, modern canning from root to top and stem to core. I love inspiring business owners to get started on their journeys, encouraging folks to be part of their local community, and I'm excited to help business owners tell their stories. Join us as we explore the journeys of women entrepreneurs in the food and beverage industry. Hello, and welcome to Missoni and Marshall, a meaningful marketplace. Thanks for joining us as we hear the stories of female food entrepreneurs. We're glad that you joined us today. We're here to tell stories of hope and inspiration for all of our food friends out there. This is Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce. And Sarah Missoni of Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center. Sarah, today we're going to be um, talking cheese with our guest in just a few minutes, but I, I know we've talked about it a little bit before, but you're quite the cheese expert. Will, um, you, will you talk about your experience with cheese a little bit and what kinds of things you do currently and that OSU does? Those are the things I was thinking. Yeah, so um, when I was a student at OSU, I actually was on the dairy products judging team. And I was the number one butter and ice cream judge in the nation in 1985. And then um, in my career, I've uh, actually run a small cheese factory, the Blue Heron at the coast in Tillamook. I did that for one summer. And then I've launched into using my technical training. So I'm one of 65 technically trained judges for uh, cheeses and butter and ice cream in the nation. So I would help judge for the American Cheese Society. I judge for the American Dairy Goat Association, and I've judged for the Sophie Awards in New York City with especially Food Association. You're so cool, man. <laughs> You're like a cheese expert. I yeah, <laughs> I am. But the funny thing is, I don't really know the like. I don't know who made what cheese. I just am not into those kind of details. I just know. Like if something's bitter or if the flavor profile isn't correct or if the texture isn't right or, you know, how yeah. they finish the surface of the cheese, if there's a weird bacteria present, all that kind of stuff. That's what I know. Well, I was looking up um, all different kinds of cheeses that can be made from other animals other than like cows and goats, which is normal. Yeah. Us. But I was wondering if you've ever had camel's milk cheese because it exists. I've had camel's milk, mm -hmm. but I have not had camel's milk cheese. I'm sorry, I have not had that. I have had buffalo milk cheese oh, yeah. and buffalo milk um, ice cream, which is delicious. Yeah, I don't think it's very common here because, you know, we don't have camels. <laughs> but in places where they do, I think it's more common to find camel's milk cheese. But I just it said it was one of the rarest ones to find here. So I was wondering, <laughs> wondering if you had had it. <laughs> I would have to say I, I, um, I would like. So when I tasted the camel's milk, it was actually in New York for the Sophie Awards. And I'm not sure how old the camel's milk was. It was submitted to the dairy um, products um, section of the judging and 
you know, I just don't know a lot about the sample quality that we finally tasted. So it wasn't, it wasn't memorably bad or memorably good. Let's just put it this way. (laughs) It just was. It was was just there. (laughs) It was shock therapy. Well, I want to introduce our guest today. We are joined by Sarah Marcus of Briar Rose Creamery. And we were saying before um, we started recording the show that this is the first time that there have been, our, that we've had a guest, Sarah. So it's like the trinity of Sarah. So well, I not only said- that, <laughs> we all have the same initials, Sarah M. <gasps> Even better. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a good show i can tell <laughs> sarah Masoni, do you remember that that was the first thing that i wrote to i you do that, is yeah. that we had the same initials so we were destined to be friends <laughs> you're, you're like we have the same initials i was like what <laughs> the triumvirate yeah, yeah. well that's cool welcome sarah right, so- we're so excited you're here today thanks sarah and sarah yes <laughs> of course so you are the owner, operator, cheesemaker, all the things, right? Garbage person, <laughs> dishwasher, <laughs> uh, plumber, electrician, sanitation supervisor. expert. Yes, sanitation <laughs> supervisor. I, I am a small business owner, so I pretty much mm-hmm. wear all the hats. <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> we we know how that goes for sure. Well, um, we want to connect people to you. So um, let's start out first by just where can people find you on social media or your website? We want to connect you to them. Well, website's easy. It's briarrosecreamery.com, all one word. Uh, and on social media, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. I don't use it that much. Um, so pretty much Facebook, Instagram are my main outlets. Um, and I'm, I love posting photos. I take a lot of photos of cheese. I find cheese to be very compelling and a captivating subject. So I'm always refreshing my, uh, especially the Instagram feed, you know, cross pollinate over to Facebook. But. You have a really pretty website too. Thank are you. Those, did you yeah. take all those photos? Uh, my friend, Christine Hyatt did. Um, oh, Christine. She, she's yeah, so sweet. She, she's awesome. Yeah. Met her many years ago when she was president of the American Cheese Society. Yeah. And she was just leaving Portland to move to Arizona. And I was just leaving the Bay Area to move to Portland. So we're kind of ships crossing in the night. But Mm -hmm. then when she moved back up here, she uh, she took a lot of our photos for the website. Most of them, actually, all of them, I should say. And a local um, web designer helped me do it here in Portland. So that's cool. uh, Yeah. I wanted it to be something that was very compelling, that felt very kind of romantic and really expressed the beauty of uh, our surroundings here in Oregon. Yeah, it is pretty. Thank you. So you... Go ahead, Sarah. (laughs) I was just going to say, I was looking on your website and you have a lot of places listed as where where your cheeses are sold. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what Sarah Marshall is going to ask you. Where can people find your cheeses? Uh, I'm pretty much a regional cheesemaker. So West Coast is where I would say you would get it primarily. Um, here around Portland, uh, the usual suspects of New Seasons, Whole Foods, Market of Choice, uh, Zoo Pans. Um, 
uh, here in our neck of the woods, you can go to Red Hills Market if you're in Dundee or Newburgh. Uh, there's a new cheese shop called Good Company Cheeses. Mm. Uh, and she uh, does awesome cheese plates as well as uh, um, charcuterie. Um, and it's run by a woman that used to be the cheese buyer for one of my distributors. So she knows her stuff and really uh, top notch. We're very lucky to have her out here in in uh, Yamhill County. Um, and then farther afield, um, we can find my cheeses around Seattle, uh, at some of the thriftways up there. Um, and I go into California as well. So uh, Small Space Foods distributes me down in California. They are the, uh, the, the umbrella for Cowgirl Creamery. Uh, so you can find uh, Briar Rose, uh, Cowgirl sometimes, uh, Rainbow Foods all the time in San Francisco, as well as um, Cheese Plus down there, uh, and Oliver's Markets, and then occasionally places like Austin, Texas, you'll find my cheese, and wow. it kind of goes it goes out into the world, and I don't really know where it winds up, because I let others handle that part. I'll make the cheese and get it to the distributors, and then they get it out to places uh, farther afield, so... Well, you yeah, have, you have mentioned the um, the Bay Area a couple of times, and you have kind of a long history of cheese making. You're here, you know, in the Pacific Northwest now. But um, can you kind of talk about the places that you've made cheese and and where you got your cheese making experience, where your journey started? Sure. Um, I started. I'm from the, the Bay Area. I grew up there. And uh, spent some time, went to college back in the Midwest in Missouri, lived in Austin for a year, but then I came back to California and immersed myself in radio, <laughs> actually. And I was uh, at, in commercial broadcasting for a while. Then I worked in the music business and just a very um, twisty path, career path. Um, and eventually I got burned out in the nine to five world that I kind of found myself in working for environmental nonprofits and had this, uh, I was actually working with a career counselor and in my first session with her sat down and she was list, she listed a whole bunch of different career options. And one of them actually happened to be cheesemaker. And I'm like, that sounds kind of fun, but I live in San Francisco. I, I'm not near farms or cows or goats or anything like that. So how on earth can I be a cheesemaker? So I kind of filed it away, went and worked a large nonprofit, got totally burned out by office politics and layoffs and more work getting piled on my desk and just couldn't deal. Uh, so I finally decided to throw in the towel and do a major career shift and saw a job on Craigslist for a cheesemonger at Cowgirl Creamery in the Ferry Building in San Francisco. And so I applied, they called me up, Nailed the interview. It was awesome. I knew how to sell. I had worked at a little used record shop for many years, um, buying and selling uh, music. And I, so I knew how to verbalize things that were hard to pinpoint, like flavors, like music. You know, people come in humming a song, and I'm like, oh, you're looking for this album. And go pull the album out, sell it to them. Uh, so I was able to take that skill and translate it into selling cheese. So I could articulate flavors that people were wanting to find. Uh, so I got this job as a cheesemonger selling cheese and 
Peg and Sue uh, talked to me and kind of trying to feel out what I wanted to do. And I said, listen, I, I love selling cheese, but what I really want to do is I want to learn how to make cheese. And they're like, great, we'll give you an internship, but first you got to go take a class. So I took a class at Cal Poly, just a week short course on how to, uh, how to make artisan cheese. And I loved it, but I was totally overwhelmed because it was all chemistry. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, I was a liberal arts major in college and it, it was kind of over my head a bit, but the actual hands-on practical side of the cheese making that we did at Cal Poly in their, um, their food lab, I just loved it. I, it was so much fun. And then go back up to San Francisco, told the cowgirl, like, I've taken this class. What are we going to do now? And they're like, all right, go out to Point Reyes, start making Mount Tam and, and Red Hawk. So I did. Once a week, I drive out and uh, got my feet wet. And they're still good friends of mine. They're mentors. Um, from there, I got an internship overseas. I applied to a bunch of places over in England because I wanted to keep making cheese, but I wanted, wanted a different experience, you know, different perspective. So uh, the one place that answered me was in Devon, England. It was Ticklemore Cheese Company. And they make blue cheeses as well as one of my favorite um, little goat cheeses called Ticklemore Goat. And they're exported uh, here in the U.S. by Neil Jarrett Dairy. So you can find them occasionally, um, although I haven't seen them for a while, at least not around Portland. Um, anyway, so I got to live there. I essentially got to house it for the cheesemakers. Well, they went off to their country house in Spain for a couple of months, and I got to make cheese in their facility and live in the apartment that was attached to the cheese plant um, in England. So that was, for me, just like a dream come true. And when I'm in the vat, I just, that's where I come alive. That's where I just feel this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I just love the, the immersive experience of making cheese. I mean, you're, you're transforming milk from a liquid into a gel, and then you're transforming that gel into something that you can put into molds and let, and eventually become more of a solid and, and eat it. So there's this like magic to it. There's this, you know, it's, it's uh, this alchemical transformation that happens. You're changing states of matter. I mean, I, I kind of get kind of deep into it, <laughs> um, but it, well, it's, think, it's really fun. I think with your cheeses too, that you can tell that you care about, you know, each piece of cheese, each wheel of cheese, and they're so beautiful. Um, you know, I, I've had a booth next year's quite a few times over the years at the farmer's market and um, just the different patterns and, um, and cuts. I mean, I, I'm not a cheese maker, so I'm not going to use probably the right terms, but the, 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 cheese that you make is is not only delicious but it's so artful you know and beautiful and you can kind of see on your website if people go and check it out you it really shines and on on the website how beautiful it is thank you yeah it's beautiful yeah. well cheese will take the shape of whatever you put it in when you're making it so um, one of the things i learned when i was in england is they were taking their cheeses and using colanders that they got from the local well uh Woolworths. I mean, they still have Woolworths. I can't say it well, but <laughs> um, so essentially, you know, the local like uh, all-purpose shop. Yeah, it's yeah. store exactly. Um, and they were draining these beautiful cheeses in these colanders that cost like 
as he said, you know, it's a quid a piece. And if they break, you throw it out, you get another one, as opposed to the really expensive molds that you buy that all come from you know, France and Italy or Spain. Um, so it was, they were unique because they had this really awesome basket pattern to them. And it was actually a really cheap way to kind of get into cheese making um, because the, the startup costs for a cheese plant and all the little bits and bobs you need, it's incredibly expensive. Almost everything you need is made overseas. It's not made here. Um, so it all has to get imported and there's you know, all those, the time it takes to get these things. So discovering that you could drain cheese in the simple colander was like revolutionary for me. Uh, so when I started my plant, I went to um, some of the Asian uh, supermarkets out on uh, Southeast 82nd and bought these colanders, these little colorful colanders that had this really awesome basket pattern to them. Um, and I started making my feta in these things and some of the goat cheeses that I produced early on. And it, it really set my cheeses apart because they did look different. And um, the nuance of how the cheese drains through these through these colanders, you know, some have bigger holes, some have smaller holes. So some will retain more moisture, others will let that whey uh, flow out really quickly and create a different, you know, moisture content in the cheese. And all of these are factors that can kind of make your cheese unique. So it was kind of fun that I had this, uh, I just use these colanders because they were cheap, uh, but they're also food safe. And it really helped me make my mark early on, I think. In, in well, we eat first with our eyes. So when you make your food beautiful, I think that attracts people to want to taste it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know you make. I know you make a lot of different varieties of cheeses. I think the one that I tend to buy the most often is just like the feta. I think you call it feta. Is that right? Or, uh, fata Morgana. Fata. <laughs> fata Morgana. Yeah. I'm a I'm a very basic cheese gal, so <laughs> that's, that's one that I um, buy a lot. But can you talk about some of the other styles of cheese that you make and kind of describe them to our listeners? Mm -hmm. I think you have them alphabetical on your website, starting with Butter Baby. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should probably pull up my website, but I think I can I can wait. I think that uh, means yeah. it's high in fat. It's it's a butter bomb. I mean, it would, it's the one cheese, uh, Butter Bloom and Butter Baby. Butter Baby is a small format that we sell at the farmer's markets. And then Butter Bloom is the one I sell usually to um, grocery stores and uh, restaurants and places. Uh, well, a lot of the wineries will buy them too. Ones that need the a larger format. I mean, large By larger, I mean it's about a pound, a pound and a half. It's not really huge. But the small, like quarter pound ones are perfect for uh, farmer's markets because it's just good for like one or two people. Yeah. Um, and it, it allowed me to uh, actually ex have something that I could just dedicate to the farmer's market and not have to cut up all these wheels and then repackage them. So, <laughs> so are it those, saved us some time. Are those surface ripened or what makes uh, butter yeah. and butter bloom unique? Uh, they are. They're bloomy rinded cheeses. So think brie or camembert in terms of like kissing cousins, I would call them, but they're not a brie or a camembert by any means. I don't use those recipes. Um, it's closer to a robiola or a, a French cheese called a charousse. So it's it's a whole milk. I don't add any extra extra cream. I don't have a cream separator. You know, that's another 
very expensive piece of equipment that <laughs> I just, I don't do it. I just honor the milk as it comes from the cow. So I just capture that milk and um, the milk that goes into Butter Baby and Butter Bloom is from a herd of Guernsey cows. Mm-hmm. And Guernseys are like Jerseys. Um, they are a cow that has a very high butter fat content. Um, and so it really just makes this very luscious cheese um, in, in the end. The Fata Morgana, my feta style cheese, is also made with the Guernsey milk. So when you say high butter fat, like I think a lot of people think about ice cream and they think they need mm-hmm. to have like ice cream that's 16% fat. So <laughs> you're the expert how, in that. <laughs> yeah. So what are, what are we talking on those two higher fat cheeses? What is the fat content? Um, well, as it comes, uh, milk really is that. probably the, what the is butter it, fat. Four, it, four percent fat i don't know yeah on average if you're getting like just your average holstein what you get at the grocery store milk it's going to be about four percent these guys are five percent oh so if you think like in terms of butter you've got your average grocery store butter that's what 12 grams of fat per serving and then you've got 13 grams per fat for the really luscious european uh those higher fat butters i mean it's just that little extra fat just makes it so much more rich so in in the milk it's just it when you drink their milk straight which i often i'll pull some out of the pasteurizer when we're uh, cooling it and i'll bring some home i mean this is what i use in the house uh it tastes like ice cream it's really just naturally sweet and then you've got that higher butter fat so it just coats everything and it's really luscious um so it makes awesome pudding <laughs> yum <laughs> which i do at home so what um, is yeah, what is a uh, callisto 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 yeah or what is Calisto? that cheese? either way uh so that's a washed rind cheese that i describe as alpine style it's actually mm. a cheese i made by mistake I was originally, yeah, you know, the best things. I know. Sometimes those are the best ones. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I used, it was based on a cheese that I make uh, with goat milk called Carina. And so similar Alpine style, but the core recipe was one that was for a Telegio. So softer, washed rind, kind of funky, kind of uh, uh, texture wise, kind of custardy. I mean, just that soft, luscious um, ages out. And when it's really awesome, it smells like a dirty diaper. I mean, it can be funky. Um, So this cheese, when I made it, I did some math poorly, which has never been a strong point of mine. (laughs) And uh, I screwed up, I think, on uh, the rennet. And it became really firm. And I'm like, okay, well, let's, well, keep going. We've got this cheese, we got to make it. And uh, so it turned into this really firm cheese that was nothing like Telegio. Uh, so I aged it out just to see what would happen. And I started washing the rind in a brine solution. So just a little pure salt water solution. We literally bathe, take the surface of the cheese and like bathe it, rub it down, give it a little massage, tickle it and turn it next day, do the same thing, give it a little tickle and uh, kind of rubbing it, making sure they're happy. Uh, and we aged it out for a couple of months. And the cheese itself turned into this like amazing uh, kind of chewy, um, supple uh, texture that melted beautifully, uh, had this nutty peanut skin um, 
sometimes there's like hints of like brown mustard in there and uh, preserved lemon. It, it just like had this complexity to it that I had never had in another cheese. Um, so I'm like, awesome. I kept making it and kept refining it. So over the past four years, it's gone from goat milk to cow milk. And then in the cow milk of Callisto, uh, for the past two and a half years, it's just gotten better and better, you know, as with each season. Uh, and it's actually one of my favorite cheeses. It's, it's a cheese that when you take a bite of it, you're still tasting it 10 minutes later with like mm. new flavors that are coming across your palate. And it just opens and carries and just keeps going. It, so it's pretty ex exquisite. So you live on a hill. I saw a picture of your your creamery up in the hill. Have you um, explored digging a cave to age your cheese in in the side of the hill? <laughs> I've thought about it. You know, I want you to do it. Come on. <laughs> I have fantasies. I'll help. I'll bring a shovel. <laughs> It'll be there a while. Yeah, this this dirt, I mean, it's clay. We're in the Dundee Hills. So it's Perfect. this red, red soil that's ancient volcanic oxidized. Just, it, I mean, everything turns orange. Our dog turns orange. <laughs> everything that's white is no longer white. It turns orange. Um, but it's got this just... I mean, it's neighbors or wineries. Um, but for us, I, I think I capture some of the terroir of the, of our the area. water, probably the water. Yep, exactly. And it adds this like crazy tropical fruit note into all of the cheeses, even just my fresh fromage blanc. You can taste it in there. And it's just this unifying flavor through all my products. Um, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, yeah, someday I'll dig a cave, you know, it'd be fun. I have, <laughs> I've seen neighbors that have done it for their beautiful wine vaults and I'm like, oh, that's really fancy. But, you know, I, if I had an extra X number of dollars, I'd probably buy a generator. I mean, first. when I, when I, <laughs> when I was a little kid, we traveled to Europe in a Volkswagen camper and we drove all over the place. But the one place I remember the most was um, there's a cave up in the mountains. I think it must be in France. It was for St. Nectar. Have you heard of that? Cheese? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Love it. And yes. my, I, went, I got to go in the cave with my dad and it really was not much. I mean, it was really a cave and it was dark and dank and smelly and moldy and <laughs> drippy and all kinds of weird. I mean, I think if you could dig a cave, that would be that would be awesome. It'd be fun. I have man-made above-ground caves, so <laughs> they're easier. climate controlled. Yeah, or you know, if I live, well, the guys out at um, Cascadia Creamery out in Trout Lake, Washington, have their natural uh, volcanic cave that they age their cheeses in. Yeah, it's a lava tube. Yeah, yeah just they have the sandstone caves in the Twin Cities where they still, I think, store cheeses and stuff. That's where I grew up in Minnesota. Some, anyway. Oh, nice. Some I'm fascinated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, ladies, and we'll come back and talk about how you choose the kinds of milk that you choose. Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences and the Food Innovation Center are proud sponsors of Meaningful Marketplace. With a mission to serve all Oregonians, we are committed to giving voice to those whose food and agricultural stories are not always heard. By providing access and opportunity for a more diverse and just food system, because food brings people together. 
All right, Sarah, tell us a little bit about the milk you're using and all these wonderful cheeses. Oh, well, I use uh, the milk from two different farms. So I've got, uh, I have two farmers that I work with. Uh, both are, they're about five miles apart from each other. Uh, one is a, a herd of organic Ayrshire cows and they live outside of Woodburn, closer probably to Mount Angel, uh, but their address technically is Woodburn. Uh, and the other herd that we work with is a herd of Guernseys. Um, the Ayrshires are, are organic. Uh, they have access to pasture most of the year, except, you know, middle of winter when the pastures are really muddy and then the cows are in the barns. Um, and same with the Guernseys. They're also pasture-based, but they are not organic. They're conventional. So if a cow gets sick, they will treat them with antibiotics and antibiotics. They're kind of kept in hospital pens in the barns, so they don't have their milk go into the milk pool. Um, I have, I guess when I first started making cheese here in Oregon, I, uh, my quest was to find Ayrshires, uh, or Ayrshire as they say um, in other parts of the country uh, where I learned about the cows. Um, reason why I was looking for Ayrshires was because it, when I was in England making cheese, uh, the cheesemaker there used the milk of Ayrshire cows, and he swore by this breed. He said, if you're going to make cheese, especially cheese that you age for a long time, uh, he was making blue cheeses. So these are cheeses that they aged for at least a year, often longer. Um, sometimes they, they had one they released at about six months. But so he was hanging on to these, cheese, these cheeses for many months. So it's a significant investment in his time and in space. So the Ayrshires are unique in cows and the breeds of cows in that their fat in the milk is naturally partially homogenized. Uh, so meaning the milk doesn't separate like it does like all the other breeds. So when you're you're making cheese, that milk uh, stays incorporated into the body of of the milk of well the curd in this case. Um, so it's not separating and the fat itself is slightly smaller in structure. So, you know, if you imagine like all of these, they call them fat globules, they're these big round components in the milk. And if it's a little bit smaller, um, again, it's going to break down a little easier. And in Ayrshire milk, they have this propensity to break down in more savory ways. Um, it doesn't have a tendency to go bitter, unlike uh, the milk, say, like the Guernsey milk um, can or Jersey milk, the ones of the higher fat content breeds. Um, so it's kind of like an insurance plan. Uh, you know, if the Jersey or Guernsey milk has a propensity to go bitter as it ages over time, you don't want to use that. So you'd use the Ayrshire milk because it's it won't. I mean, oh, and we've got more over parade behind me. They're done for the day. <laughs> Don't mind them. <laughs> I'm just at work. <laughs> so. It's okay. We, um, you know, we're used to interviewing small business owners. And so it's either your staff team coming through or now that everybody's working from home, it's a lot of kids coming through. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people tell us, I'm sitting in my car because yeah. it's pretty hectic in the, in the processing <laughs> area. <laughs> right, right. 
At least if I were up at the house, you'd probably see cats and dogs. Can you tell us, now that you've told us about the milk, can you tell us a little bit about the cultures that you use? The bacteria Um, cultures? Sure. Uh, They are, it's like what you use in yogurt, um, like probiotic cultures. So there are certain cultures that they've isolated from farms over in Europe. Uh, So... Do you want like some of the history? Yeah, tell us a little bit bit about it. I think people want to know that. Uh, So people have, uh, I mean, people have been making cheese for at least 6,000 years. So it's it's a long tradition of cheese making. Um, And in order to get consistency, you buy these commercially available cultures. Uh, Most of them come from Denmark or France. um, And these, they call them culture houses that we buy the milk from or buy the cultures from. And so these culture houses have gone out, they've sent teams of scientists out to uh, different cheesemakers and to different farms where they're making the cheese. And they'll buy samples of these cheeses that they're making in these regions. Like, you know, every single valley in France and Switzerland has their own essentially indigenous cheese that they're making. And these cultures have it's kind of like sourdough. They've mutated to the area where they're making them. So they become their own unique strains. Um, and so these scientists go out and they isolate these strains and they replicate them and then they dehydrate them. And we can buy them now as cultures here in America mm-hmm. uh, so that we are able to recreate some of these cheeses of Europe because most of the cheeses that we know are ones that come from Europe, like, you know, Gruyere, you know, Parmesan, Cheddar, of course, being probably the number one. Well, I would think that some of those, even though you're inoculating with those known bacteria, I would think that you have some of your own um, indigenous bacteria in your plant. Over time, they... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they do mutate. Um, So we see, like, Tillamook, for instance, they have their own unique cultures for their cheeses because they've been making them there for so long. They actually have mother cultures, they call them, much like, you know, mothers you use in baking um, that are unique to Tillamook. And Tillamook, I mean, I don't want to sit here and talk about all of their practices, but from what I understand, they can't take their extra sharp cheddar and replicate it anywhere else because of the unique environment in Tillamook. They're right by the coast. The cows that are out there are all eating green grass year round. Um, so they're getting salt water coming or salt air coming in off the ocean, coating the grass. Cows are eating that grass. It's peak. Their milk is unique to that region. So it becomes their own terroir. Um, and Tillamook is able to kind of capture that uniqueness, but they can't replicate it anywhere else because if they do, the cultures change and it just, it's no longer that same cheese. And they do have experts, these sensory experts that you know do the Q the quality um, for them. And they've tried to replicate extra sharp cheddars like the blue or the red label or the black label. Um, and they can't, <laughs> so they have to always make some cheese out in Tillamook no matter what. Um, so it is similar. So I do have, um, I'd say more of the surface ripening cultures are, have kind of adapted to my caves and yeah. adds some of the flavor. Um, so yeah, definitely. I can't replicate that elsewhere. I mean, I probably could get close, but it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, the cultures can be unique and there are cheesemakers here in the US that have taken their milk and they've isolated some of the cultures in their milk and have created their own mothers. Like I know mm-hmm. Peter Dixon mm-hmm. on the East Coast, he's back in Vermont. Um, he has a, a project with a group of other cheesemakers called the Cornerstone Project. Mm-hmm. And they have, they're each making the same cheese using the same recipe. But always different. But they're using the cultures that are unique in their own herds. And Mm. um, so you're getting these four different cheeses. Essentially, it becomes four different cheeses, but it's all the same recipe. Um, Same make, same, all the steps are the same. But the only difference is they're each using their own individual milk that they have then created a mother from. And they're using that to inoculate or culture their their cheeses. So it's really fun and exciting. I mean, I love seeing what they're doing. Um, yeah. I would like to do that at some point, but you know, it takes more time. But <laughs> maybe <laughs> one of these days when I get a little bigger and have more people doing more work for me, I can start. I have the, um, my dad and I wrote a brie cheese recipe for the blue heron when I worked there and I have it, it's all handwritten. Um, and I got all nice. my cultures from Canada at the time. So there, we, mm-hmm. I mean, that was in the mid eighties. It's like you, Europe, what? <laughs> that was too yeah. far away. <laughs> you had to get well, stuff from Canada. Well, the, the cultures come from Europe, but I buy them from guys in Wisconsin and yeah. in Seattle. Yeah. So they're importing them. And then I buy it from the distributor essentially here in the U.S. And or yeah. there is one in Canada that I could also buy from. Yeah. And when you order from them, they'll drive it across. Uh, well, this is pre-COVID, uh, but they would drive across uh, the border in New York and then mail it from New York. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of people do that. I heard for business. Yeah. Yeah. Do you um, have a cheese that you think tells your story best? Like what what cheese that you make represents you? Mm. <laughs> it's like choosing your favorite child. Yeah, I I'm going to make you choose. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're all delicious. Um, I, I really like Maya. I, that's probably my my go-to, and that's one I haven't talked about yet. So Maya, um, it's made with the Ayrshire milk, Ayrshire, um, and it's a washed rind cheese. Um, it's got that robiola texture, so it's kind of soft, velvety when it's young, and then becomes very custardy and just exquisite and lush as it's aged. Again, it's a washed rind cheese, so I'm bathing it in a brine while it's aging. Um, and it's delicious at every stage of its development. So when it's really young, it's like I said, it's velvety. And then it starts to mature and it breaks down just under the rind. And the rind is the skin of the cheese. Um, And it just gets a little bit softer there. And then as it ages more, just it continues to break down and just get in, turns into this delicious custardy kind of savory butter bomb with hints of papaya and, um, what else is in there? A little earthy, slightly funky, but not too funky. I call it a gateway washed rind cheese. So, so is you, that, if, you, if you want to kind of push your boundaries <laughs> a little bit. I think that's listed in your limited edition. And might I add, I found that you have oh, more my. than 15 types of cheese you're making. Do you think that's too many? <laughs> I don't do them all at the same time. Ah. <laughs> I, can, I, ro- I rotate them and some are seasonal. My, I, I do make your... Maya make I, year round. 
Uh, Phoebe is, yeah, Phoebe is one that's a seasonal limited edition one. And that essentially I take Maya uh, as the core and then I wrap it in spruce bark. So, um, and this is a traditional method of aging cheeses in the mountains of Switzerland and France, where they'll take a, a softer cheese, wrap it in spruce bark to help keep it contained and age it in that spruce bark. And that actually slows down the aging and the ripening process of the cheese. And it retains a little more moisture and it loses that moisture in a slower, more controlled way um, so that it, it just develops this whole different uh, flavor profile. And Phoebe, it's, uh, I only make it in the fall and winter time when the cows are back in the barns, the butterfat actually goes even higher in the winter time because the cows are essentially sitting around being lazy. They're not doing much. They're just, you know, the food is brought to them. They get milked and then they go and lay back down and they just kind of start packing on the pounds. <laughs> uh, and the rich milk, it just flows and the butterfat goes up. And so I really try to capture that in, in Maya, but then Phoebe, which I make usually around Thanksgiving till Valentine's day, um, really helps accentuate that, quality of the milk and I in that cheese in particular I get flavors of rose petals mm. and I'm not kidding it tastes like rose petals and um, raspberries sometimes it's more mulberry this is like red berry flavor that comes through um, ham <laughs> like pork broth I mean this mm. it's just incredible so that's available um, now the Phoebe one is uh, I've got, I'm sold out and I have another batch that should be ready in a couple of weeks, oh, okay. um, which I've made as fee babies. So they're little tiny guys. <laughs> they're about, uh, a third of a pound, little tiny ones that I'm going mm. to be selling at, uh, Portland farmer's market when we're there in, in February, when we start up again and I'll have them for sale here at the farm store. That's another outlet. Oh, for you have right a farm store? The plant. Yes. So tell us about your farm store. I was wondering about that. Can So people yeah. can come and buy cheese there? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're open uh, limited hours, but we do open Fridays and Saturdays uh, from noon till five. And then weekdays, uh, we are open by appointment. So we work around our production schedule during the week. Um, and we're closed Sundays. I just, I need a day to do laundry. <laughs> just don't, <laughs> don't do much. Um, so right now, uh, this time of, well, in these times, these <laughs> pandemic times, um, we don't have people come into our farm store, but we have what we call the micro store where essentially, um, it's like a to-go window that we have. Um, so we sell off of a cheese tray and we have all these cheeses, um, usually four to six, closer to six every week um, that we put out and we explain the cheeses and walk people through every single cheese. We describe them and just kind of tell them how they can use them and give them mm. you know, suggestions on how to cook with them and what to pair them with. Uh, and it's fun. Uh, you just come on up when it's not you know, COVID. We actually do cheese tastings um, where I just kind of walk you through a guided tasting, kind of like wine wine tastings where it's from the most mild and and approachable to the most complex and intense so sarah marshall does hot sauce tastings like that nice yeah yeah we usually have people come and 
walk them through all the different flavors. I mean, I think there's a lot of similarities in, in what we're doing, even though we're making totally different products, but you know, we have things that come in and out of season and we source from different local farmers and depending on what time of year we're making things, it's going to be different. And, and I think that's a really fun thing about being able to make your own products and kind of do different things. I think Sarah, you asked if she had too many, um, types of cheese. And I think that's the thing that people say to me all the time is that I, I make too many flavors um, because we have, we have mm -hmm. 27 or so that I'm approved to make that. And then, you know, sometimes I'll just make them once a year for a week. And then, mm -hmm. you know, my regular customers know to come to the market and get those just because I'm only going to have them that, that one week. But I think that's the thing that keeps me like connected to it. And, and you said you really, shine and you love being in there and making it and that's how I feel too like if I can do something really special that's only going to be around this one time it keeps me like connected to the, the people around me and the environment yeah yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. I mean the R&D process for me I mean that's when I really get to scratch that creative itch yeah like you know I'll work with a local brewery and they're like hey we want to do uh, a special cheese for the Oregon Cheese Festival. Um, and they'll pair me up or I'll get paired with um, uh, Ale Song Brewing from Eugene. And so last year uh, we did this special version of um, uh, my mini Maya. So I take Maya and do a small format and I wash it in beer, which I then call Saucy Nipper. So the little saucy nippers were washed in this incredible uh, sour beer that just turned this cheese into what was normally just a nice, slightly funky wash rind cheese into this like amazingly complex uh, bacon dipped in butter explosion. <laughs> I mean, it was it was crazy, uh, but really, really good. Um, so that's for me, it's really fun because I can do these little projects where, you know, just get a case of beer and I'll wash the cheese in that and it'll just be for a single event or just for a little bit of time. Um, I was washing Maya and gin last year. That was mm -hmm. pretty fun. Got a local gin and just as it ages, um, the gin, all the volatiles kind of go away. So, you know, I was hoping I would get like this really awesome, like juniper and all these other flavors coming through. No, it, it actually smelled like seven up all the citrus oh. thing, like nothing else did, <laughs> but it turned, it was okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I really enjoyed, you know, this, and I still, admit I've got gin in, in the back, but like I, keep, I make sure the employees aren't, you know, um, but it's, it, it's fun. It's just, you know, these little side projects that I can do for a while. Um, with COVID, I actually cut back on a lot of that. I said, you know, let's just keep it simple. I'm not going to do these projects and I'm not going to, work on any new cheeses this year because I need to have an outlet to sell them. Yeah. And, you know, with farmer's markets being up and down and you can't do tastings, you know, you're not going to take your mask off so that you can try this new cheese. I'm like, we're going to keep it simple. No crazy gin or beer wash cheeses this year. Um, and, you know, I kind of miss some of that, but you know, I can do that when things. Yeah. You'll be able to do it again. We, we had to do yeah. the same. I think it's pretty common because yeah. people have to be able to taste stuff, especially yeah. if they don't know it. So, well, exactly. um, we, uh, do you have any advice for aspiring food entrepreneurs? I mean, you have built this business. Do you have any advice for our listeners out there that might be thinking about going into business? Do your homework, 
do your homework, do your homework. Visit as many people as you can. Check out facilities. Talk to people that have done it and gone out of business. Talk to people that are succeeding. I mean, try to pick everyone's brain that you can. Um, I, in the cheese community, especially, everyone's pretty open, uh, especially here in the Northwest. Um, you know, if, you, if we have time, I mean, obviously, I'll, I'll answer questions. Um, and I, for me, it's just uh, stay flexible. I mean, uh, I've had to rebuild my business three or four times <laughs> since we started. Um, with actually moving the physical location of my creamery. I started in a very small milk house attached to where the goat dairy used to be when I first started. And we built this building that we're in. And so we had to physically move location. Then I transitioned from goat milk to cow's milk. And that was like totally recreating the business because suddenly I had no more goat milk because the goat dairy went away. They went out of business. And I had all, I had been making cow's milk cheeses before that, but I had to totally rebuild my business because everyone knew me for this one type of cheese. And now I have to make my reputation again with a new type of cheese, but I was able to, to survive that. Um, and then, you know, with COVID coming and totally changing the landscape for everyone, um, for me, I just, I looked at that as, you know, another bump in the road. And it's like, I've survived these other bumps in the road. I'm like, this is a curveball I could not have predicted. Uh, but because I stayed flexible and because I'm actually very small, I was able to, I think, pivot my business in such a way that I could respond to this challenge that um, in a way that kept our doors open, I didn't have to lay anyone off. And we're actually, I think, moving into uh, 2021 uh, in a pretty good position. Um, you know, I've, I've taken out loans and, uh, and that's, you know, that was a challenge, but you know, the loans are now paid off. <laughs> so we're, we're doing okay. Um, you know, that was, uh, we're 10 years, almost 11 years in now and we're still going. Congratulations. Yay. Yeah. That's, Thank that's, you. That's, <laughs> something to celebrate for sure and yeah, I think wonderful. it's wonderful yeah. I think it's good advice for people too because it's like um you never really know what's going to come at you and I think that um mm -hmm. you know you just kind of have to roll with whatever comes your way, <laughs> way. so being yeah. flexible is a really good skill to have as a business owner for sure mm -hmm. I mean there's definitely probably salt water in those caves from my tears <laughs> it's like going in there I'm like ah, <laughs> I was just talking to someone today about how when I was when I was pregnant and making sauce that I would and I was in a shared kitchen and I would go in there and cry and they were they were like was it secret crying and I was like no no I told them I was gonna go in and walk in and cry things were just hard my feet were swollen I had this big belly I was like I'm just oh, gonna go. I was so hot I was like I'm just gonna go be in the cold walk in I'll be back when I pull myself together mm. <laughs> yeah yeah, it's definitely a roller coaster. I mean, and it's it's made me stronger. But I mean, early on, there were so many times when I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. You know, yeah. I don't know if I can survive a week. And we actually, Oregon's has an awesome team of inspectors. I mean, there were times when I'm just like, you know, talking to my dairy inspector, and she's you know 
checking my vat. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be here another month. And she's like, you'll be okay. (laughs) Just talk to me through whatever crisis I happened to be in that day. And you did Um, it. You survived and you're here. Oh, yeah. It's great. It's wonderful. Well, ladies, unfortunately, we are out of time. I feel like we could talk cheese all day. (laughs) I can. (laughs) We got to end it. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on the show, Sarah. It was really great to hear about your business. And um, people can find you in February. You said you're going to be back at the farmer's market. Is that right? Yep. As long as the weather, if it's not snowing, we'll be there. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, we're a little flexible early on, but definitely um, we're there February, uh, every other week, March, um, both at PSU and at Beaverton. And then uh, yeah, in April, we're full tilt boogie at all our markets. We're also um, in McMinnville on Thursdays and Schmansky on Wednesdays uh, during the season. So yeah, Perfect. four farmers markets. <laughs> well, people can find you and um, we'll tag some of the stores you're in, but they can also find it on your website. So thanks for yeah. joining us today, Sarah. We- thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> thanks, Sarah. <laughs> we record um, Sony and Marshall every week. Tune in and listen to us on your favorite podcast platforms. Thank you to our audio engineer and our production assistant. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can submit uh, a message to us dm us on instagram sony and marshall and we will be back next week thanks for joining us everybody bye bye for now market of choice is a proud sponsor of meaningful marketplace as a family-owned organ grocer for 42 years market of choice strives to inspire mentor and assist a diverse group of local producers and foster equity in our communities With 11 stores in Oregon, Market of Choice supports these craft makers as well as farmers, fisher folk, and ranchers by bringing more than 7,000 local products to market. Together, we form a sustainable, community-based food system that serves our great state. To learn more, go to marketofchoice.com. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.